you ever encountered someone and you really thought that there was no way in the world that they would ever change? I'm sure we've all met people like that. There's a possibility some of us have been that person. And yet, in the passage that we'll look at this morning, we see God doing an amazing work. The passage starts in uh, verse 9, with Saul breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then it ends in verse 31, that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. What made the difference between the beginning of this section and the end of this section? What happened was that through God's power, the one who had been the persecutor became the persecuted, and as a result of that, the persecuted church became, at least for a time, the church of peace. And as we see what God has done here, I think there's a number of, of lessons that we can reflect on from this passage. But let's start with the beginning of the chapter, that Saul is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We ask, perhaps, as we come to verse 2, why does he go to the high priest and want to go to the synagogues at Damascus? Why why would he need to go outside of Jerusalem? Well, if you go back to chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then you come down to verse 3, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And so there seems to be the reality that Paul has, to a certain extent, exhausted his rage against the church in the immediate region of Jerusalem and of Judea, and so now he has to go to yet another place. And so he goes up to Damascus. He asks for these letters from the high priest. So uh, as we were looking at this morning, Matthew 28, 18, and 20, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. What was the basis of the authority for Paul, now in this passage still Saul, what was the basis of his authority in going after these Christians in another place? It was the authority of the high priest that gave him authorization to do what it was that he was doing. And as Jonathan clarified for us in verse 2 when it says, if he found any belonging to the way, the way was just a description uh, because Christians are not yet called Christians until later on in the book of Acts. It was a way of describing those who were following Christ, trusting in Him as the Messiah, and had turned to Him as their Savior and Lord. And the goal of Paul's excursion up to Damascus would be that he would gather those who followed Christ and bring them as prisoners back to Jerusalem so that they could be held under trial and punished accordingly. And certainly this is a continuation of the persecution that sort of broke out with Stephen even had its roots earlier when Peter and John were warned not to teach or preach anymore, and it sort of escalated from don't do this to a beating to this great persecution against the church. But what happened in Saul's life that transformed his approach? That meant that when he was heading to Damascus, he had one idea, and when he actually arrived in Damascus, the reality was something very different. It's what we see in verses 3 through 9. As it he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. He was almost there to his goal where he was going to begin this work of persecuting the church. 
and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And this light is described uh, differently here versus uh, when Saul retells this story in Acts 22. Here he says that they uh, see, uh, hear the voice but see no one. In Acts 22 it's described slightly differently in that um, he says those traveling with me uh, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so they, the people that are traveling with Paul see what's going on. They know that something has happened, but they don't really know what. The voice was not for them. The experience was not for them. And so they're not entirely sure what's taken place. But what takes place? In this moment, when the light from heaven flashes around Saul, verse 4, he falls to the ground and hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And as we see this encounter that Saul has with Jesus, we ask ourselves, what was so significant about these words that Jesus said to him that transformed Saul's understanding, both of himself and of Christ and of his relationship to the church? One of the things that Jesus communicates to Saul in this moment is, I think, found in the fact that he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Until this point, in Saul's mind, there's the Jewish way of life, faith, following God. These people over here are rebellious, mistaken, in opposition to God. And yet think back to what Gamaliel said regarding whether they should beat Peter and John, not so much whether they should beat them, but whether they should uh, stop their ministry entirely. He said, what if we be f are found to be fighting against God? And presumably Saul would have heard him say that. And now that comes to fruition because Jesus reinforces that idea and says, it's not just an if, like Gamaliel said, it's a for sure. You are fighting against God. It's not just, here's God's people, and then here's these other people over here. It's rather, here's God's people, and the ones that you're associating with are not acting as God's people because you're persecuting the ones who are really following me. Jesus identifies himself with the church to such a degree that he says to Saul, you're not just persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. And not just you are, are following me and these other people are following me. He's saying, you're not following me and these people are. Saul's response is also interesting. He said, who are you, Lord? Tell me who you are. Now, you would think at this point that Saul would have a pretty good idea of who it was that he was speaking to. And yet, I think that he is seeking clarification in his mind about what it means, what is the point of which he's doing wrong that he needs to turn from. And it, so there's a further clarification at the end of verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So now there's no question in, in Saul's mind. It's not just God says, leave this group of people alone. But Jesus, the one that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders had rejected, 
the one who, that the guilt had come upon them for, for murdering him, that's the one who's speaking to Saul and saying, this is my church and you're persecuting it and you're sinning in doing that. And think about Saul's own life. He describes it in other places. If anybody would get into heaven for being zealous for God, I was zealous for God in the wrong way. And yet in this moment, God opens his eyes, God transforms his understanding, and he sees that all these things he's lived for up to this point, he's lived wrongly, he's followed God in the wrong way, he has tried to reach God by his own efforts, and yet when the one that all of these things that he had devoted his life to, what they pointed to, these prophecies, these truths, these commands, they pointed to the one who had come when he finally came, Saul and the rest rejected him. And in this moment, God opens his eyes to see and to recognize that he could know all of these details about the law, he could try as hard as he might to keep the law, but he needed to believe in Jesus the one whom all these things was about. And he needed to be on the side of the church that God was building, not in, op not in opposition to it. And this transformed Saul's life. And in the second half of verse 6, But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. There's an interesting observation about conversion here, I think, that we should take note of. Sometimes we look at conversion as something that we do with God. In other words, I pray a prayer, I uh, confess my sins, I come to God. What's going on here, and I realize some of it's wrapped up both in his commission as an apostle as well as in his conversion, but what's going on here is he's going this way and God seizes his attention and he says, no, you're going this way. Sometimes we miss that aspect of conversion. We think that it's something that we do, but we see from these verses that it's something that God does. God was the one who transformed him from going this way and persecuting the church to going this way, as we'll see later in the chapter, and being a part of the church. What was the response of the people who were with him? They were amazed. They weren't sure what to make of it. Verse 7, the wind who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Here's this fascinating irony in what Luke is saying. Saul saw and now can't see. They can't see uh, at first, but now they do see, and they lead Saul, who's presently blind, into the city. Think about what must have been going through their minds as that was taking place. What happened? Why can't he see? What's going to happen next? The story doesn't tell us any more specifics about their response to the entirety of this circumstance, and yet it's fascinating to see how Luke contrasts this idea of seeing, not seeing, from the men traveling with Saul and Saul himself. And then verse 9, And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Some people perhaps might make too much of that, but it is interesting to note that there are parallels between this experience for Saul, the experience of Jonah and the whale, 
and the experience of Christ between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Again, not to make too much of those parallels, but I think that God probably set it up that way to help Saul reflect on the significance of all these things as he was waiting for what God was going to do next. The neither eating nor drinking was not a not due to a lack of desire, but rather due to Saul saying this was such a sobering and significant experience that I am going to pause and pray and focus on nothing else. How do we know that? Because at the end of verse 11 says regarding Saul, he is praying. Saul sets out on his journey. He is fervent for what he believes is God's work. He's about to arrive at Damascus, and he says, I'm going to ravage the church, seize people, carry them back to Jerusalem, and continue this crusade of stamping out this false way and upholding God's truth. God arrests his attention and says, no, what you're doing is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to be doing because this is my church and you're standing outside of it opposing it. I have something else for you, both in terms of your relationship to me and in what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Connected with this, I think it's also important for us to note that sometimes we think that people are beyond the reach of the gospel. That person's never going to be saved because they're too wicked, they're too proud, they're too stubborn, whatever it is. So we give up hope. That person can't possibly trust Christ. Saul was throwing people in prison and participating in murdering them, and even calls himself a murderer in another place in Scripture, and yet God transforms his life and uses him to take the gospel throughout the known world. We'll see that through the rest of the book of Acts. But when we look at someone and we say, that person can't trust Christ because of, look at Saul. What happens next? Now we sort of get to it from the other perspective. What about the people who are going to relate to Saul after this event? What's their response going to be? Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now just to clarify, this is not the Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5, because obviously they were dead at this point. This is a different Ananias. And yet God appears to this man, and he says his name. He says, Here I am, Lord. An Old Testament story that reminds you of? The story of Samuel. God says to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So he has a specific task. Get up and go. It's a little bit of the echoes of Abraham, not quite as drastically, but some parallels there. Get up and go to the place that I'm showing you that you need to go and look for this specific man who's waiting for you. Again, God working in this. Look at verse 12. He's seen in a vision the man who will come give him back his sight. Does that strike you as odd at all? He's seen while he's blind that his sight will be restored. Again, God's power working in this specific situation. 
Ananias is a little hesitant, as you might expect. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You have to wonder if Anan what tone of voice Ananias said this in. Uh, sometimes, as a parent, you say to your kids, we're going to do such and such. And the first thing that pops in their minds is, but what about all these other things that you said we're going to do this and this and this? How is this all going to fit together? Ananias sort of has that perspective in his heart and mind. He says, God, did you forget about the fact that he came here to persecute and kill us and drag us off to Jerusalem? What's God's response? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And in verses 15 and 16, God gives Ananias for Saul basically what his life's purpose was going to be. Your life's purpose was to destroy the church. I'm giving you a new life's purpose, and it's that you're going to take the gospel and that you're going to know the suffering that you inflicted on others, not as punishment, but rather that my power, my glory might be seen in your life. That's the message to a certain extent that God was sending Ananias to give to Saul. Verse 17, so Ananias departed. Unlike Moses unlike several other key figures throughout the Bible who questioned whether God knew what he was doing, even after he had commanded them to do certain things. Ananias has this initial hesitation, and then God says, it will be okay, or at the very least, I'm with you, even if it doesn't turn out the way that you expect, I'm with you, go do this, here's what the message you're supposed to give. Verse 17, Ananias departs, he gets up, and he does what God has told him to do. So he goes into the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting that God apparently said a little bit more to him than he had said in verses 11 and 12, because... He says, the one who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming. It doesn't say that in the previous verses. And when we get to Acts 22, we'll see Saul give even some more details. Luke is just sort of giving a sort of real brief overview because his main focus is not primarily on Saul at this point, even though this section is about Saul. His main focus is on what God is doing in the church as a whole. And so Saul gives more details in his defense before the Jewish council uh, later on in the book of Acts. But Ananias does what God had called him to do, and it says, He has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's some interesting symbolism there. Because when we're spiritually dead, we're blind. And when the Spirit comes, we have light, we have sight, we have new life. Verse 18, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And as we look at these two verses again, God does some sort of a miracle. And sometimes we get caught up in the details of this second miracle in, verses eight, in verse 18, 
How does he get his sight back? What does it mean that something like scales fell off of his eyes? Uh, is there some sort of rational explanation for those things? But the real miracle had already happened, right? The real miracle was Saul's going this way, and now Saul has joined himself with those that he was formerly persecuting. But the secondary miracle is that God gives him back his sight, and his sight was not given back to him specifically so that he could boast in it or, or anything like that. His sight was given back to him simply because he would need it to do the task that God had called him to do. But certainly, I'm sure every time he thought about that point in his life, I'm sure he thought about the significance of, I was actually physically blind, at the same point that I was spiritually blind. And now neither of those things are true. I can see both physically and spiritually. So what happens next? For several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And trying to think through the chronology of what happens in Saul's life is a little bit challenging because Luke sort of summarizes it really shortly. But when you get from Saul's conversion experience here in Acts 9 to when you see um, Saul and Barnabas sent out in chapter 13, there's a lapse of, I think, about 14 years. Uh, let me show you that. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. It says in Galatians 1, verse 13, we'll just start in verse 11, that's probably a good place to start. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus." Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy." And they were glorifying God because of me. 
Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And this would have been connected with, I believe, the council in Acts 15. Uh, so uh, some of that sort of sets the stage for the chronology of, of the order of events of what's taking place. We see from Luke, in, here in Acts, Saul is with the disciples at Damascus. And so there's this uh, interesting tension between what Paul is saying in Galatians and what he's saying here in Acts 9. In Acts 9, he's emphasizing sort of the Paul's converted, he preaches the gospel and, and the response of the Jews. So he sort of, sort of compresses it a great deal. In Galatians, the point that Paul is making is that the gospel I received wasn't something that I got through the other apostles, but I saw Jesus face to face. And then he sort of lays out the fact that uh, it was a long time before he actually even had interaction with the other apostles in Jerusalem. And so this was something that God specifically had given to him to do. But we see almost immediately after Saul's conversion here in verses 19 through 22, that Saul starts proclaiming the very Jesus that he had been persecuting uh, the church belonging to Jesus. And what's the response of the people to his message? First of all, what's his message? He is the Son of God. Why was it significant that Saul said, Jesus is the Son of God? Because that was the one point that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not accept. What did they say when Jesus made those claims? You're insane. You have a demon. You blaspheme God. What does Saul now recognize? Jesus was true, and we were the ones who were blaspheming God when we made those accusations. And so that's why it's significant that this was the message that he brought to them. But the response of the people in hearing it was similar to the response that the churches would have for a long time after Saul's conversion, which was, isn't this the one who used to do this, and now he's doing this? What happened? And the only explanation produced a particular response, which was that they glorified God, specifically those who were trusting in him. But Saul kept increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. How did he prove it? I think based on what we've seen already in Acts, he would have proved it by using the scriptures themselves and saying these Old Testament passages, like uh, Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch in the passage we looked at last week, these passages point to Christ. Here's how he has fulfilled them. Jesus is the Christ. Believe on him. The message that he proclaimed about himself, that he is the Son of God, he is the Son of God. Trust in him. Believe in him. And so then there's that gap where he goes into the wilderness for a space of time. And then we see, uh, now in verses 23 and following, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So here's the one who came confidently into Damascus saying, I am going to persecute those who follow Christ who live there. Now himself being persecuted and having to leave the city secretly in fear of his life. These verses set the stage for the Jewish response to Saul for the rest of the book of Acts. 
they heard the gospel message, they rejected the gospel message, they sought to kill the messenger. This connects back with what Jesus said in Matthew 21, that every time I have sent you someone with the truth, your response has been to ignore, to become angry at, and then to kill the one who's bringing you the message of the truth. You did that with the prophets, you did that with Christ, and we could say from the book of Acts, they did that with almost every person that brought the gospel message to them. I think that there is a warning in that for us. We can hear the truth, and we can have the same response that the Jews did. Sometimes a response of indifference, but usually a response of opposition given enough time, which is, I don't want to hear this message, I will not follow it, and then we seek to silence those who would speak the truth to us. And say, well, how would that be possible in the context like ours when we profess Christ? There, the main possibility is this. It is possible for people to say, I belong to Christ, and not really to belong to Christ. How do we know if we belong to Christ or not? Have our lives been transformed as Saul's life was transformed? That we disobeyed God, and now we obey God. It's not the obeying and the disobeying that makes us right with God, but rather shows us whether or not we are right with God. Have we ever turned away from our sin and turned to God? Furthermore, are we following God or are we following ourselves? What's our response to the truth? This is something that, that John picks up in 1 John. What's our response to the truth? Do we believe it or do we reject it? The Jews were shown to be opposing God because they constantly rejected the truth. Here's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all these things from the Old Testament. They said, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to listen to it. We will do whatever it takes to make sure no one reminds us of it. Do we have that sort of attitude to the truth? If we belong to God, we will not have the response that the Jews did to the truth and to those who speak the truth. What's the response of the, the people in verse 26 when he comes to Jerusalem? Before we go there, let me just show you something briefly from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 gives a little bit more insight into this specific incident that uh, took place in Paul's life. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32 and 33, In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. It doesn't add a great more detail, but we see that the opposition to Saul was not just from the Jewish religious leaders, but also from those who were in political authority who were allied with those Jewish religious leaders. Again, that has echoes for us of what had taken place with Christ. It wasn't just the Jews. It was also Herod that opposed Christ. Again, just a, a further detail to highlight the, the wrongness of their response to the gospel message. But when Saul finally arrives in Jerusalem, verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
And so there's been a decent amount of time that has elapsed, and yet even in spite of that, people are seeing Saul, and they're saying, we don't really believe that you have truly been converted. But notice one man's response, verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to them and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But this is the same Barnabas that we saw back in Acts 4, 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What's your attitude towards someone who professes Christ? Some of this enters into the whole process of church membership. There's a, a tendency, I think, in the church today to want to see people go through a almost sort of like a year-long examination and uh, be really sure that they're following Christ before we ever add them into the church body. And while I think that there are certainly churches that add people into the church, into their membership, on the basis of of sort of a weak profession of faith. They can't really explain the gospel, so it may not be that they really understand it. I think that we see from here that there is also a measure to which Barnabas is held up as an example of someone who is willing to give Saul the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because his confidence is not in Saul himself, but in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives. And I think that it's important as we come to this discussion of what change and spiritual growth and all that looks like in uh, even in our church to say can the spirit transform people and is there a measure in which we should give them the benefit of the doubt not tolerating heresy not tolerating significant error not being careless about who we admit into membership but rather saying if god could save saul and if the holy spirit works to transform people's lives should we build unnecessary obstacles before adding people to the assembly, or should we, like Barnabas, at least seek to evaluate whether their profession of faith is real? And it seems that Barnabas was the one who had this bridge between Saul and the apostles, and he sort of introduces the two groups, and the apostles, I'm sure, were concerned that here's this one who had gone everywhere else trying to destroy the church. What's going to happen when he comes to us? And Barnabas says... It seems like God's done a work in his life. You need to meet him. And so he brings these two groups together. And then the next verse says, He was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. His profession is borne out. It's, it's shown to be real by what he does next. And what's the response of the Jews again? Paul is so fervent in arguing with the Jews about Jesus is God, Jesus is the Christ, believe in him, that the Jews are ready to put him to death again. And so what's the response of the believers? Verse 30, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Incidentally, this is where Saul grew up. And so he's now going to, as Galatians said, minister the gospel for a time in Syria and Cilicia. 
and then before he comes back and is sent out by the church at Antioch. Now, what's the response or what's the result of all these things? Verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. When Stephen was martyred, there's this question, what's going to happen to the church? When Saul incited this persecution against the church in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, what's going to happen? The church spread to another place. When God saves the one who was the primary instrument of that persecution against God's people, what's going to happen? The church continues to grow. So what do we see based on verse 31 and based on verse 1? The church because it is God's work, not man's work, will continue to increase, whether it's times of persecution or whether it's times of peace, because the gospel transforms people from being persecutors into being those who believe the message are themselves persecuted for proclaiming it. So what does that have to do with us? Have you believed the message? Because if you're like Saul and you're opposing God's work, then like Gamaliel said a few chapters earlier, God is going to defeat you. If you oppose God's work, you can't stand in the way and stop God's purpose. So cast yourself on His mercy and join His victorious side in this battle for what will take place in this world. And even more importantly, there are people sometimes who are so... Uh, fervent in religious practice that they think that they're right with God. And Saul's example shows it's not about how committed you are to a set of beliefs. It's about whether those are the right beliefs. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one whom the message of the Old Testament points to. Do we accept that and do we believe that? And then if we really believe that, does it transform our lives? Does it transform our lives in the fact that we then take that and share that with other people? Does it transform our lives in the fact that we see other people who said, I believe that message, and we welcome them into the church assembly versus holding them at arm's length and viewing them with suspicion for a variety of reasons that might have to do with their background or some personal characteristic? What's our attitude toward the people who are being transformed by the gospel as we obey God's purpose here? God preserved his church. God built his church. Look at verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. The gospel is spreading. Acts 1.8. I will build my church through you as you are my witnesses. It wasn't so much a command as it was a statement of fact. The gospel is going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread to Judea. It's going to go to the neighboring state of Samaria. It's going to spread from there throughout the known world. And if God could do that then, do we think that God can do that now? We're part of an assembly that is smaller in numbers than maybe another church that we might drive by on the way here or that we might be familiar with. So what is our attitude to that? Do we just say, all right, this is what we are, this is what we have been, this is what we will be? Or do we say, God can build his church now like he built his church then? I can't do it, you can't do it, but as we obey God, He can do it. Do we have that hope and the confidence to say that we will be satisfied with whatever God does, but we will not let the obstacle to the growth of the church be unwillingness on our part to do what God has called us to do? 
God builds his church. God builds his church by transforming people who seek to destroy it into those who themselves are such a part of that work that those who formerly were their allies in seeking to destroy the church persecute them as well. God will accomplish his purpose in the church, and we have the privilege to be a part of it. We'll go now to our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'll ask the men to come forward if you would.